This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. The green bin. Oh, it's a topic in London. Will we or won't we? When will we? When won't we? All of those things have been out there. There have been a lot of things, and it's it's kind of been done the right way. We have to realize this because this has taken a lot of information in. We, in talking last week about this topic, heard about some municipalities who have said, baby diapers, absolutely, put those into the green bin. That'll be fine. Or how about, well, we want people to use the green bin, so let's let them put waste into plastic bags and drop them in the green bin. That'll be fine. So those are the kinds of things that we've heard before from our next guest that you've got to consider. Jay Stanford joins us from the city of London to talk about where green bins sit now. Jay, how have you been? Hey, good afternoon there, Mike. I've been doing very well, and how about you? Not too bad. Not too bad. Now, in past conversations, we have heard that there have been overhead costs for the Green Bin program as much as, I'm trying to remember back, $15 million, and then an annual cost to operate that is in the millions. What do we know about where the Green Bin program for London, Ontario sits as August of 2020 and a pandemic comes to an end? I'll tell you what, Mike, let me tell you where we sat as of February of this year, in fact, heading into March. That is when Council approved the budget for the Green Bin Program and a number of other initiatives as part of what we call the 60% Waste Diversion Action Plan to bring this community from 45% waste diversion, where we currently sit, up to 60%. So things were doing really well back in March. Now, of course, we all know the pandemic hits. Uh, so between now and essentially what has occurred, we're seeing some delays. Now, the delays, and we are starting to get a better handle on this, could be as much as six months, potentially even a little bit higher. And so these are some of the things that we're going to be reporting to committee and council on in the month of October, because they have asked us and said, look, the program is going forward, the budget has been approved, but let's figure out how we can do it at the right pace um, make sure that we're uh, doing things where manufacturers can deliver trucks on time, can deliver carts on time, and make sure that we're also looking at how this can be all part of also building and rebuilding the economy here in London. So there's a lot of things at play right now. So there's going to be some delays, no doubt about it. But I think what we're going to see is some juggling of how we're going to deliver some of these programs uh, in the next uh, two, three years. Jay Stanford joining us, Director of Environmental Programs and Solid Waste at the City of London. Do any of those delays come because of COVID-19? Well, yes. The big one is going to be with the green bin. And part of the delay is going to be associated with our ability to get trucks. And when I say trucks, that's the, the vehicle to go around, obviously, to pick up the green bin material. And we're looking at what's called a co-collection vehicle. You pick up green bin on half the truck or a third of the truck and garbage on the other side of the truck. Unfortunately, those trucks uh, in the marketplace have been delayed anywhere between six and nine months. That's part of the problem. So that is something that we've got to account for as we move forward. So we're going to have to look at how do we roll this into London because we know a lot of people 
I've been waiting for this for a long time, Mike. You and I have been talking about it for a while. <laughs> but we've got, we've got to be respectful of what's going on in the marketplace to find the right way to roll this in to make sure that we're successful. Okay, so more meeting with council in October. Concern about trucks because do you do you kind of subcontract the trucks or do you have to actually bring in trucks that will be London trucks? These will be brand new trucks that are brought in, and we've got to phase those in because we want to make sure that we're uh, investing in the capital at the right point in time. But you can't collect green bin materials at the same time as garbage without having a split in the vehicle. It's essentially that. So we do need some new trucks here. So that is a part of the delay. The other item, Mike, and you've just hit the nail on the head in your uh, comments at the beginning, we still have to go through the final process of what will go in the green bin. And that is something that's going to occur this fall. Are we looking at just the food waste items, scraps from vegetables, proteins such as meat and fish? Or are we looking at items such as pet waste, such as diapers that some communities are? Uh, There's still indecision out there about what the right approach is, and we're going to go through the final uh, final analysis of that in the months coming up. And Jay, how do you determine where the collection will go? All of the stuff, no matter what it it is made up of, where does it go? Who takes it? Well, that's a great question because we have got to find end markets for this, of course, and processors. There's a couple right here in London, and there's some others in southwestern Ontario. And through a competitive process, those companies will put forward their pricing scheme on what they wish to receive in the way of a tipping fee, is generally what is referred to. And so London would have to pay these companies so much per ton to have the material turned into either a compost product or turned into uh, an energy product through an anaerobic digestion process. Um, and is also sometimes products such as a fertilizer are also created from these operations. So these are all the different variables that would be uh, put in a bid and submitted to the City of London under a competitive process. We are talking right now with Jay Stanford, who is the Director of Environmental Waste and Environmental Programs and Solid Waste with the City of London. We're looking at green bins and how things progress forward. So there are more meetings to come. Is is this something, you said the budget has been approved for it. Is this one of those things, though, that, that could be re-examined, or is this just a go no matter what? Oh, I, I never like to say no matter what, because that's not <laughs> my call, right? <laughs> Remember, that, that's council's call. Right. They have, they've been very clear on this program, and Londoners have been very patient. Uh, but yet, no, I think when it comes to money, there's always the need to make sure you're doing the things to the best of everyone's ability, and of course, with being very respectful of taxpayer dollars. We had currently stated rolling out by late 2021, and that was always part of the plan. So that would be about a year and two, three months from now. Let's say we might be able to start a portion of the city at that point in time, but I do suspect that a good portion will be pushed into 2022. So okay. m- money-wise, Mike, no, that does not appear to be issue right now. It is just doing the final touches on what the program looks like, getting the contracts in place, and then getting those vehicles in town. What's it been like going through this process, Jay? Do you like, in hindsight the detail, the attention to detail that has been spent on it? I I do, to be quite honest, because we have not been in a crisis situation here in the city with respect to waste management like some other communities. We've had the chance to 
uh, listen and hear from what other communities have done, what they've done wisely, and where they have struggled. And this is part of the balancing act. When you come later in the piece, you're able to uh, capitalize on the benefits of, of listening to others. And that is what we've been spending our time, uh, or especially over the last couple months here, because there have been some challenges out there. And I believe you talked about some of those last week. Those are some of the things we're trying to avoid here in London to put the best possible system in place at the best possible price. When it comes to other waste collection, what are some updates on where we sit that way? Well, recycling, you know, a lot of people, you know, they've been asking me, have recycling quantities gone up or down because of the pandemic? And interestingly enough, it's about the same. Um, and, and I was a little bit surprised by that because with more people at home, we thought there'd be potentially much more recycling. We've seen an increase about 1% or 2% by weight. Um, but remember, the population goes up about 1% or 2% per year as well. So overall, recycling about the same. A key challenge, though, that we've seen from the pandemic, though, is just a change in how the marketplace is working. Um, and there's sort of good news and bad news. The, the bad news first, Mike, is that the amount paid for recyclables has dropped dramatically. We used to get about $120 a ton for all the recyclables. And each year we'd collect about 25,000 tons. That number has dropped down to about $80 per ton probably the lowest since 2009. So there's one of the challenges we have to work with. The good news, of course, is that materials continue to be recycled. We hear horror stories from time to time. That's not the case in London. And the really good news is a lot of our materials, if not all, are now being recycled in North America. So we're rebuilding the markets in North America so we don't have to rely on global markets. So that's some of the, the, the silver lining of what's occurring on recycling. And a key thing, though, Mike, I want to share with you, uh, we have new recycling trucks rolling into the city right now. Now, if you, as you know, they're brown here in London, the company Miller Waste. And typically, there's a trough on the side of the trucks, and recyclables are collected in two streams, and they go into the side of the truck, and they're tipped in the top. The change Londoners are going to see is it's a two-person recycling truck. It's still brown but it actually looks like a garbage truck. And that has me a bit worried there because people might think the recyclables are going in the garbage. They are not. That truck has got a split at the back and that truck will still be doing all the same great things with the recyclables that Londoners work so hard to provide us. Great point, because immediately that's what people will think, right? Hey, wait a minute, my stuff. It's, hey, I, I separated that in the blue bins, and now it's going into the same place. No, not so much. So that's, that's an excellent point. Jay, we did just get a note about garbage being left in front of businesses in the downtown. Have you heard anything about this? Oh, okay. We're going through some changes downtown right now, so that, that can occur. Uh, we've got special program taking place on Dundas Place right now to help out with the reopening of businesses and the patios and all that, too. So, so don't, that can occur, and, and we just need to hear where that's the case so we can get that corrected as quickly as possible. We've also moved to more night collection downtown. So that could possibly one of the uh, the problems we're experiencing right here. Perhaps that uh, that person's not aware of some of the details. So if there's an address or email address to be shared with me, Mike, you know how to reach me. Excellent. Well, I'll find that out and I'll get that to you. Thanks so much for this, Jay. We really appreciate the updates on everything. Hey, thanks for having me on and enjoy your afternoon, Mike. You too. Be safe. That's Jay Stanford. Jay is the Director of Environmental Programs and Solid Waste at the City of London.
There's a really interesting news conference that is taking place at the same time as another really interesting news conference. We're going to have one of those for you at 980cfpl.ca, and that will be the update on the fight against COVID-19 locally. But at the same time, Ontario Safe Advocacy for Education is having a news conference, and we're going to aim to speak with some of the people who are speaking at this particular news conference as the week goes along, because they're advocating for a number of different things like smaller class sizes, safety protocols. The premier of the province, Doug Ford, just spoke and has said they've done everything, everything in order to ensure a safe return to school. And there are those who don't see it that way. Debbie Montgomery is going to be speaking. She is the president of Unifor Local 4268, representing school bus drivers. They've got students, epidemiologists, you name it. So it'll be interesting to hear what it is that they're saying. We'll get a rundown on that tomorrow, and then we'll talk to some of these people individually as the week goes along and the countdown continues to the start of school. We want to know that there's a countdown that is on to the end of the pandemic. That we can't know right now. We don't know when the end is coming. We do have vaccine details. You can find more about those at globalnews.ca, and it's basically Canada securing the deals for possible COVID-19 vaccines. Right now they have four different procurement agreements, and we'll see what happens after we move along down that path. But we can know that there is a countdown to the end of things like CERB. We can know that there has been an awful lot of money spent, and the countdown to what is needed may not be anywhere nearby. So when you hear things like there has been some misses in targeting and trying to get funds into the hands of people who need it, you have to kind of expect it. But at the same time, you don't really want it to happen to any great amount. And when a new report says $22.3 billion of Ottawa's COVID spending potentially wasted due to a lack of targeting assistance... Well, we've got to look a whole lot closer at this. Joining us right now is Jason Clemens. He's the executive vice president at the Fraser Institute, and he is co-author of this report on the federal government wasting billions on poorly targeted assistance. Jason, thanks for being here today. My pleasure. Thank you. Well, let's kind of begin at the beginning on this one. Simply the headline that catches all of our attention that we have had over $80 billion spent, you would hate to think that more than a quarter of that would be wasted. How would you define wasted in this sense? Sure. So what we wanted to look at was the the possibility of money going to individuals without really accounting for their circumstances, particularly their household circumstances when it comes to uh, largely young people. Um, and so in other words, if you look at two of the five analyses, what we're focusing on are dependent children. And unfortunately, the programs that were enacted uh, quite quickly did not account for whether they were dependent children or whether they were the primary household earner or even the secondary household earner. They treated all young people the same. Um, and then, obviously, because they didn't even asked the question about their status, they didn't then look at household income. And so the problem then is 
SERB in particular, but also the student subsidy program, treats young people in very different circumstances the same. So the young person who had a part-time job, both parents are working, making significant amount of money, household income hasn't changed, they get the same benefit as a young person who, let's say, is living in a household with a single parent who has lost their job and the student or the young person was actually contributing to household income in a very meaningful way. Um, I think any Canadian would look at those two circumstances and say, of course, we want to be generous and helpful in the second. It's quite questionable why we're giving any income to the first household, and yet both of those would receive the same benefit. And so the problem is, What we see again and again is not enough assistance being sent to certain households who are incredibly in incredibly difficult circumstances right now, while at the same time we're sending uh, income and transfers to people whose need is at the very least questionable. and And I think even more troublesome is in most cases, those individuals are actually made better off than they were when they were working. Yeah, that's a very good point, because anyone who's looked into, say, for instance, the CERB or the Student Assistance Program knows that there were a couple of boxes that you had to either fill in or check. Nothing dealt with your household income. It wouldn't have taken much to put a household income box there and say, okay, put down the line of whatever your parents had on their tax form last year, and if it's over a certain amount, no, you you can't get this. It needs to go to people who need it that much more that wouldn't have been hard at least i'm i'm scratching my head on this one am i scratching it in the right place no no exactly i i think time and again what the prime minister's office uh in this government has shown is that um first they're not particularly concerned about the deficit that is the amount of borrowing that we are doing right now uh or in the future and secondly, they erred on the side of expediency, not effectiveness. And, and the easiest way to think about this is the $2.5 billion that was spent as a one-time payment to seniors um, to help those seniors, ostensibly, at least what the government said, was to help those seniors through difficult times. Now, what they could have done is linked that payment with what's called the Guaranteed Income Supplement, which is an existing program specifically aimed at low-income seniors. Instead, what they did is allocate the benefit to all seniors eligible. They may not be receiving the old age security, but all they had to be was eligible for old age security, and they all got a $300 payment. Now, what that means is that instead of sending $1,000 to low-income seniors, we sent $300 to all seniors eligible for OAS, some of whom are in households with over $200,000 in income. Uh, that, that just to me signals that, again, we have a federal government that is not at all concerned about borrowing right now and is just not concerned with targeting assistance to those in need versus being expedient. We are talking with Jason Clemens, Executive Vice President at the Fraser Institute and co-author of a report that looks at $22.3 billion of Ottawa's COVID spending potentially wasted due to a lack of targeting assistance in all of this. Jason, once the horse is out of the barn, too late, can they go back and say, all right, we're, we're going to claw some of this back because these households did not need it? Can you even entertain something like that? No, I, I think that would actually be quite inappropriate because, 
again, these are not people that are acting inappropriately or fraudulently. They're playing by the rules. The problem is the rules were just very poorly set up by the prime minister's office. Um, and so I, I, I don't think this is about going backwards and trying to look at taxpayer money. And again, we are talking up to almost 22 billion or a little over 22 billion dollars, pardon me, um, or a little over one in four dollars of the 82 billion that we looked at. I think the most important thing uh, right now is that we have a prime minister's office that is looking at a massive expansion of federal spending, almost all of which will be financed by new debt. Um, and one of the programs they are talking about is an income supplement based on, or at least premised on, CERB. And so, at the very least, I would hope that the prime minister's office and the federal government more broadly is looking at the actual experience of CERB over the last six months, seeing where it worked well and where it didn't work well as they design a potentially new permanent program uh, for Canadians. Because that one, if you've got someone who knows CERB is ending, is in a situation like you described where perhaps it's a single parent home, a job has been lost, where they are in serious need of that money, or someone who has not been able to return to work as of yet, they would need that. But we can't keep giving it to people who, who are just able to say, yeah, well, I, I check all the boxes, so I can get it, right? Right. Well, and it's even more complicated than that. So, for example, depending on how they design it and, and some of the rumors or at least signals coming out of Ottawa or that are that it's going to be more like a guaranteed annual income program. Um, and the reason that complicates things further is that if it's like that, that, that kind of a program where it's a guaranteed annual income for Canadians, there's an enormous interaction that the federal government has done no work, as near as I can tell, in how they interact with provincial programs. Because, for example, that kind of a program federally will wipe out provincial welfare. You, you wouldn't be eligible for both provincial welfare and a federal minimum income. It could also then have effects on housing subsidies, uh, subsidies for pharmaceuticals, particularly those who have high drug bills. And so... My concern since March has been that the federal government, again, just seems to be focused on expediency and rushing reforms as opposed to thoughtfully and particularly focusing on effectiveness. And so I do have a number of concerns about what the federal government may be proposing uh, in a few weeks in the throne speech and then uh, potentially a federal budget this fall. Again, in many ways, how it interacts with provincial programs, what are the incentives of these new programs, and I certainly hope learning the lessons, both positive and negative, of the last five months and the various programs they've introduced. Well, we really appreciate you keeping an eye on this, doing the math on this, Jason, and talking with us about it. Thanks so much, and please keep safe. My pleasure. Thank you. That's Jason Clemens, Executive Vice President at the Fraser Institute and co-author of The Federal Government Wasting Billions in Poorly Targeted Assistance. So as Jason says, the thing to watch for if we're going to turn this into an income supplement for things that have it after the CERB does end for people who need it, that it doesn't just wind up being open-ended, that it is being targeted, that it is going to people who need it. But at the same time, he points out there are some other complexities, like if this becomes 
an income supplement, if it becomes almost like a living wage, then what do you do with some of the other programs that are already funding things like that, that are already looking at various forms of social assistance? That would take levels of government getting their heads together at a time when neither of them has time. As we well know, it is tough to keep things straight during a pandemic because there are so many changes. This is good one day, and then, whoa, 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 here's what we found out. Actually, we should be doing it this way. And that seems to be day after day after day. It's one of the reasons why many people feel up against it now that school is beginning, because there's been this, well, let's just... See what happens here. The World Junior Hockey Championship, Rene Fossel, who's the head of the IIHF, the International Ice Hockey Federation, has come out hinting today that he doesn't foresee being able to have fans in the stands when the World Juniors come up in December, so he's waiting to see if Hockey Canada is going to have a different proposal. But that's so far into the future. It's tough to keep things straight. But... We have people who've done a phenomenal job of keeping things straight and taking a look at how things are progressing and what's working and what maybe needs tweaking. Dr. Colin Furness is one of those individuals. Dr. Furness is an assistant professor in the Faculty of Information and the Institute for Health Policy Management and Evaluation with the Dalla School of Public Health at the University of Toronto and joins us now. Dr. Furness, thanks so much for taking some time for us. How are you? I am well, um, pandemic notwithstanding. Yeah, you've been able to look at things and, and how they're changing and what's working and what's not. And we've got all kinds of things that we started out with that maybe could have worked better. I don't know, contact tracing could be on that list. If we were to go back, and it's always this way, when you get to the age of 35, 40 years old, you always wish, if I had only known then what I know now, wow, life would have been a lot different. Are we in that situation in a big way with COVID-19, or, or is it a maybe a littler way? I think we have been like that from the beginning, and I think your earlier comments are just bang on. You, you know, we, we find uh, new things. We discover new things with COVID because it is novel uh, that refine how we can go about things. And, yes, if we could go back in time, there's certain things I would do. I would have stopped travel in January, and I was calling for that in February. No one listened, but I, even that was a bit too late. I would have stopped travel then. And, of course, knowing what we now know about how well masks work at preventing droplet spread, um, we should have had people in masks in February and March. And had we done that, we'd have a very different trajectory. That said, if you think about the changes that we've made socially, I've never seen social change that fast. So depending on what lens you use, yeah, we could have, should have. And on the other hand, we've actually done relatively well in a lot of ways. Isn't it wild to walk into, let's say, a grocery store, for example, and see how many people are wearing masks when they could easily say medical condition, whether they had one or not, to avoid wearing one? That, that astounds me, and it, it gives me hope for the future of humanity, to tell you the truth. I agree. I think there was a there was an interesting poll done across the country a few weeks ago uh, that suggested four in five Canadians were taking steps. And the media focused right on the, well, what about the one in five that aren't? What about the one in five who said, I'm not doing anything to prevent the spread of COVID? And, you know, I think there's two things going on there. First of all, yes, there's, there's going to be some in every crowd, but you don't need 
everyone to be rowing in order to move the boat. You just need most people to, and that's certainly what we have. And the other thing is, you know, people can gnash their teeth around attitude and grumble, and everyone's fed up. I mean, this pandemic is dreadful. But when push comes to shove, when people around you are doing the right thing, there's a pretty good motivation to conform. If everyone's wearing a mask, you're likely to do that too. And and I think that's what we're seeing. And yeah, it makes me hopeful. I'm, I'm really proud of the Canadian response from the grassroots, from the public. Grumbling aside, we've done a good job. We are talking right now with Dr. Colin Furness from the University of Toronto. Dr. Furness is part of the Dalla Atlanta School of Public Health. Take us back to January and what it was like to be you, Dr. Furness, when you obviously saw something was coming if you wanted to stop travel. You obviously knew something was out there and you you tried to say something and it was difficult to, to get those words through. What was that like? Well, on one hand, it was really frustrating. But on the other hand, you know, my expertise and my own experience as a human being really diverge. And, and I didn't expect it to come this fast. I guess mathematically I knew it could and probably would, but I was not thinking that way. In fact, my wife loves reminding me that in early February I was suggesting, you know, we could go to New York for March break because it'll be cheaper. People are getting worried and I think it'll be okay. I had no idea that things were going to spread that fast, that far, that huge. And, and part of that is just denial. So I knew, and I also didn't know. And, and so there was, there was really two me's, the expert me and then the plain old human being me that, that really, I think, had a really hard time processing this along with everybody else. How about some of the things that we're using? We've talked about masks. Temperature checks have been mentioned on and off, contact tracing. Are there ways to even improve what we're doing with temperature checks and contact tracing now? Well, let's, let's separate those because they're very different. Contact tracing is just about the most important tool we have and have always had uh, for, for making epidemics stop and making outbreaks stop. And the key there is that you need to have enough boots on the ground. You have to have enough people who are trained to do it so that they can respond quickly. If we're waiting a week for a test result and two weeks for a contact tracer to call, there's no point doing it. You've got to be right on top of it. And so when there's not very many cases around like we have right now, it's actually really effective. But we are at risk of being overwhelmed. And that's because we don't have enough we don't have enough boots on the ground in public health. We never have. I'm really hoping that changes. Now, temperature checks, that really makes me gnash my teeth. We've known since February that this is an asymptomatic pandemic. That's something that Canada has not acknowledged. It's something that Ontario in particular hasn't acknowledged. So we're wandering around saying, yes, we should do temperature checks, knowing full well that a large proportion of cases don't present with those sorts of obvious symptoms. There are things we could do, um, such as checking blood oxygen with a pulse oximeter, the little finger clip, just as easy as taking your temperature, and it measures how much blood is in your, or how much oxygen is in your blood as a proxy for how well your lungs are doing. And if it dips low, that's a pretty good sign that you might have lungs full of COVID. But we haven't approved that, and we haven't taken that up, and we haven't done it. So I, I remain incredibly frustrated that we won't stand up and say, we get it. This is an asymptomatic pandemic. We need to treat it differently. And I think that's my single biggest frustration. And you mentioned the oxygen levels. As much as every once in a while you'll read about that and you'll hear that you can go even to a drugstore and buy a a little gadget that can check the oxygen level, much like what would happen if you were at the hospital. But that's that's something we don't even hear about. 
I know. I have one of those gadgets. You can get them on Amazon for about 35 or $40. And I've been pushing hard uh, wherever, wherever I have ears I can whisper into to say we should be doing this in schools. It's very, very simple. It's, it's incredibly simple. We need to be doing this because kids in particular often, usually present without obvious symptoms. But this would pick it up. wouldn't pick up every case, but it would certainly pick up some. And, and so, as I say, that has been, that's been a source of, of tremendous frustration to me because I think we could be doing it better. And if you really want to stop in your tracks, consider all the people around wearing Apple Watches and Fitbits. Those measure blood oxygen. So we have millions of Canadians wandering around with an early warning device strapped to their wrists, and we're not using them. Isn't that wild? That is, that's absolutely wild. But what a great point because, yeah, you're going to see a difference in what is going on in your body with those sorts of things. Apple Watches, Fitbits. Somebody's got to be talking about this. Thank you for talking about this. We're talking with Dr. Colin Furness from the University of Toronto, part of the Dalalana School of Public Health. One last thing, Dr. Furness, and, and that is that everybody's just waiting for this vaccine. And one of the big headlines right now, if you go to globalnews.ca, is Canada secures two new deals for possible COVID-19 vaccines. When you see headlines like that, how do you approach them? Uh, hopefully. I approach them hopefully. I think we all need hope. And I think I, I really want us to have a vaccine. I want everyone to have a vaccine by next spring or summer. I think that's entirely achievable. We may have multiple vaccines globally that actually work. There's several that are in human trials. Russia has already begun injecting their citizens, although they didn't complete safety trials. So they're, they're undertaking a very large-scale safety, uh, safety evaluation. Uh, so there's all sorts of possibilities. We've never seen this kind of scientific collaboration and intensive effort anytime in history. And that's pretty amazing to watch. I feel hopeful that we'll have that. But you know what? It's going to take time once we have identified one or more vaccines to get it produced and to get it deployed and to get, and to get people to actually take them. So it's going to be a long process. But I, there I feel really optimistic. Well, we're heading toward the fall. Everybody's heading there with that word that you've used, hope. And here's hoping everything goes uh, goes better than maybe we fear in all of this. Is there anything you would like to see done? Obviously, more people in public health. That would be great. Uh, anything else that you could point to to say, here comes the fall. Here's what we need. I think it's really simple. If we want to get through a second wave, and it's coming because this is what respiratory viruses do, if we all wear masks and we decrease our bubbles, I know that Ontario has mused that, that maybe we should be increasing bubbles. That couldn't be more inappropriate. Um, if we're opening schools, we should be closing bars. We should be staying home more. We should be socializing less. We don't have to do that forever, but we need to do it until the spring. And I think that we can do this. This is within our capability. We don't have to have a mess this winter. And I'm, I'm, again, I'm hopeful. I'm optimistic. Let's keep that hope alive. Dr. Furness, thanks for the time today. Thank you. That's Dr. Colin Furness, Assistant Professor in the Faculty of Information and the Institute for Health Policy Management and Evaluation at the Dalla School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. So when you have someone like Dr. Furness who can still hold on to optimism, that's good. That's a big good sign for the rest of us. Because if he's hopeful, we can all stand to be hopeful. But it does involve rowing the boat. And I love his analogy. The idea that you don't need everyone rowing to move the boat. Because I think we do get caught up in that. You don't need everyone rowing to move the boat. 
because we're always going to have humans who go, don't care, not in, not doing it, not fun for me. I only like things that are fun. That's going to happen. And even if you say, hey, it's just for a short period of time here, this, this is just for a small period of time, they're still going to say, no, I'm going to go and talk to whoever I want, do whatever I want. That is going to happen. But they don't have to be rowing the boat as long as contact tracing is working so that when that person who's being that irresponsible does contract the virus because they're putting themselves at that kind of risk, you can contact trace and say, yeah, here's all the people that you have put at risk. It's almost becoming like the Major League Baseball plan and as much as major league baseball didn't have a plan we can now look back in hindsight at what they did and learn from it you don't want people to contract this but if it sends a message in some way then you do need that and the miami marlins sent a message i didn't think baseball would be playing right now no way if you asked me a couple of months ago hey by the end of august we're still having baseball no because half the league will have COVID 19 because they can't do what they're being asked to do. Will the NFL be getting ready to play? No, not even close. And I still don't think football fits within the pandemic. But baseball is still playing. Football is still planning on starting on September the 10th in the NFL. And their case counts have been a whole lot lower than I think anybody would have expected. And maybe it was that beginning with the Miami Marlins where it's, whoa, 19 people in this organization have COVID-19. What did they do and what are we going to do to avoid that? I hope we don't need that for college and university kids. They're a big concern of mine right now. I don't know about you. Big concern of mine. The ability to super spread based on parties. You don't think frats and sororities are going to have parties? They're going to. They could be a super spreader event. We don't want that in our community. So does it take having one early on to say to the rest of them, no, no, you're done. This isn't happening. I don't know. I don't want it to have to work that way. But sometimes that's how human beings do work. You've been listening to the London Live podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.